Alcanelus wonders whether Odysseus is a god because the gods usually reveal themselves in person to the Phaeacians, and Alcanelus is confused. He, like his daughter, has made the mistake that this man, looking rather handsome, tall, and curly, happens to be a god. Well, Odysseus, as we recall from last time, says, I'm no god, I've got my shameless belly. And we all laughed at that, we're like, the belly? But the belly actually is something like a god to man, if you consider it as that which sets the goal for one's behavior when it is activated. In fact, when your hypothalamus tells you that you need to eat, you start to imagine images of food. You start to plan out behaviors that will get you close to food. In fact, when you're hungry, almost all you can think about, and thus that which you are motivated to move towards is food. And so, are you totally free as a human to decide what it is you want at all times, or are you always subject to many, many constraints, including your own belly? Always. And if you are constrained, by definition, can you be a god? No. Gods are unlimited in their power, in their lifespan. But man, very much limited. Very much limited for all his majesty. And so, Odysseus says he's endured much pain, just wants to go home. They have a little meal. Arte notices Odysseus's clothing. She asks him about it, and Odysseus tells his tale. We don't need to go back through this so much because we know it. But just for some little review for the listeners as well as for us, I'll just say, most recently he was on Ogygia with Calypso, daughter of Atlas, and before then Zeus destroyed his ship, and he floated along for nine days until reaching Calypso. So yes, he was on a raft after his ship got sunk, getting to Calypso's island, and then he was on a raft that then got sunk, leaving Calypso's island. Zeus destroyed his first ship, Poseidon destroyed his next raft. He's been having a really tough time of it. That's his choice. And so Odysseus was there with Calypso for seven years, but he makes sure to tell us that she never won his heart. Which, sometimes people like to interpret Odysseus, given his um, tete-a-tetes with both Calypso and Circe as a cheater. But I always think that this is an interesting, a very... Hmm, this is a very interesting detail to have. She never won his heart. She never won his heart. Contemporary social scientists, psychologists, even though their data is under attack and their data acquisition methods by a very famous statistician named Nassim Taleb makes a suggestion, and perhaps this is true, perhaps it's not, that what ladies tend to care about when it comes to cheating is emotional cheating. That seems to be what they care about more, according, according to the social psychologist. Whereas what men seem to care about more is physical cheating. And they suggest an evolutionary reason for this. Because if a woman physically cheats, then of course she might have a child that is not the man's. Whereas if a man emotionally cheats, he might be more likely to leave his family and no longer protect it. Which is perhaps not correct, but is very good reasoning, I would say. And so whether Odysseus has emotionally cheated or not might be an additional consideration you want to keep, especially given the fact that Calypso was actually his jailer. And you will soon see with Circe that he is commanded by a god to do as he does. In any case, he was let go by Poseidon, or he was let go by Calypso. Poseidon destroyed his craft. He ended up on Scria. He slept under a bush uh, until noon, found or met Nausicaa. She fed and clothed him, not personally, and uh, then she gave him directions there. Recall, Alcanoas criticizes her for not bringing 
him. Uh, Odysseus directly there. He says, that's a bit of a trespassing on the Zinnia, but you're young daughter, so you'll be forgiven. And then he even very famously says that he wished that he could have a son-in-law just like Odysseus. So marriage is very much on the mind for people, but why is it that Odysseus definitely will not be marrying Nausicaa? Two reasons. Yes? Already married. That's another. That's one of the big ones. Yes. And he wants to get to him. And he wants to go home. Those are two major ways. She is not in the place that he wants to be, and he's already married. So it's going to be pretty tough for her to win his heart. In any case, Alcanoa says, "Tomorrow we'll have some festivities, but for now, let's go to sleep." So let's start book eight. Athena goes through out the city as a herald of Alcanos to summon the Phaeacians to assembly. Another assembly. I hope it goes better than the last one we saw with old Telemachus getting shouted down by suitors. Before the assembly, Athena makes Odysseus taller, thicker, and curlier again to win distinction. Sort of like when we public speak, do we dress up or do we dress down? We dress up as well as possible because we're about to be seen by people, which as far as we're concerned is like being seen by God. In fact, on the Milwaukee Courthouse, it says, Vox Populi, Vox Dei, which in Latin means the voice of the people is the voice of God. So speaking in assembly is like speaking before whom? God, or at least a God of justice, yes. And I think anybody who publicly speaks would say that it feels a bit like that. You're definitely being wooded whenever you speak publicly. Watched. And judged, watched and judged, which is why most people don't like it, because what do most people not like being? Watched or judged. That's right. That's right. Good. And so, Alcanoas orders a ship for Odysseus. But in the meantime, it takes a little time to rig a ship. You have to put together a crew. You have to clean it up. It's sort of like while you're planes, you can't just... Have you ever... If you've ever been on a plane flight before, have you ever noticed that the plane parks, people come out, and then it takes a bunch of time for you still to go on, you don't just go immediately on? Well, the reason is, does anybody know why it takes a little bit of time between flights? Yes? They have to they have to restock it, yes. They have to do safety checks as well. They, they sometimes have to replace small parts. There's a lot that goes in to making sure that a plane is airworthy. Well, the same with a boat, which is just a less sophisticated technology. It's the same idea, right? You transport people across wide spaces. You have to outfit a ship. It takes a little bit of time. So while the Phaeacians do this, clean barnacles off the bottom of their ships, they summon their great blind singer, Demodocus whose name means glory of the people. Which is very interesting, very interesting. Because he happens to be a blind singer who will sing about the Trojan War. Thinking in our clever little minds right now, who would he be a parallel for? Who is it that we know who is a real person who is supposedly blind and sang of the Trojan War? Oh, Homer. Homer. And so Demodocus is himself, many scholars suggest, a figure of whom within his own poem? Homer. And so something I will teach you to do is to look in these books for when authors sneak themselves into them. And in fact, when we read Dante next year, I will tell you the person that many scholars believe that he is. His name is Nathan. He's in the sphere of the sun. If you remember that in my class next year, remind me, I'll give you extra credit. All right. Good, 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 good. So Demodocus sings a song. Just write this very quickly because it's sort of a boring song. First, he sings of a conflict between Odysseus and Achilles. We don't know what that conflict was. But I will tell you what my hypothesis is. Achilles 
is an ideal from the past, like Heracles. He is the ideal of rule by what? Think about him. What is his greatest gift? Yes? By strength and might, right? Personal, physical strength. But Odysseus, who survives the Trojan War, and in fact wins the Trojan War, is a different ideal. His ideal is victory by means of what? Having a strong what? Not just body, mind, thinking well, right? And so it's as if what the Trojan War was, was a conflict not only between peoples, but ideals. The Achillean ideal and the Odyssean ideal. Obviously, which ideal wins out? The Odyssean ideal. He's the one who survives. He's the one who makes it. Therefore, he's the one who is the best. And so, while Demodocus is singing this song, surprise, surprise, what starts to happen? Odysseus starts to cry. Of course he cries. It's a song about Ilion. Ilion, Troy, that was only nine years ago. And all he's done in the meantime is try to get back from it while losing his friends who fought alongside him. When he hears about Troy, he hears about everything that he's lost. His friends, his time, potentially even his family. And this also offers a parallel to whom? Who also cried when he heard about his father in story in the home of Menelaus. Yes? Telemachus, yes. So we see that there are similarities between these men. Neither of them recalls to us Achilleus in that what is it that was said about Achilleus? All the way back in book nine by Aias, that his heart is what? That his heart is stone or pitiless. But obviously if Odysseus and Telemachus are crying about lost family members or friends, their hearts definitely are not what? They are pitiful. Very good. Very good. All right. Well, in any case, it's time to stop crying, just as Helen once said in book four uh, uh, in Sparta. And so Alkanos then calls for additional entertainment. It's like, okay, this entertainment's not working. Our guest is crying. We better get to something else here. So let's have some boxing. Do we still like watching boxing? Yeah. And in fact, if you don't like boxing, all you have, this is not a recommendation, by the way, but those people who don't necessarily like sports, who also want them to be interesting, they often bet on sports. And so, in fact, uh, this most recent Sunday, there's, there's very popular, there was a very, there was a championship in football between the Saints and the Rams, LA Rams, and there was a huge no call. And so people wondered, they were like, even the NFL can overturn a decision and replay a game. But one of the leading theories for why that wouldn't happen is because of what? All the bets are already paid out from the game. So if you replay the game, what happens to the money that have been pay that's been paid out because of the outcome of the game? Where does it go? Uh, does it go back to the to the person who paid it out? The bookkeeper? Who knows? Who knows? And so in any case, sports and gambling have often been tied together. And that is one way that people in the past and the present have made it more interesting. That said, you can obviously lose money when you gamble, and it's illegal at your age. So, 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 you gotta go to Vegas. You gotta go to Vegas when you're of age, probably even a little older than of age. So, boxing, wrestling, we still watch wrestling, right? We have a professional wrestling, yes. Leaping, do we still watch people in the Olympics do high jumps and long jumps? Of course, it's highly impressive. Fast twitch, running. 
Do we still like to watch people run long distances, short distances, weird distances where they make odd cuts? Yeah, we like to see humans do what they can do. And so they're going to have sort of some Olympics in front of Odysseus. And so the games begin. You don't, you just need to know the winners here. Good. I'm glad that I changed this slide. I used to lay it all out too much. The games begin with running. Very famously, these games will be mimicked by two things. These games very famously mimic the Iliad Book 23, the funeral games of Patroclus. They also will be mimicked in Virgil's Aeneid in Book 5 of his Aeneid. Um, though, unfortunately, something very tragic, as usual in the Aeneid, will happen afterwards, even though they will go very well. So the games begin with running. Clitonius, another son of Alcanoas, not Laodamus, the heir as we know, easily wins. We then see a wrestling match where Laodamus's good friend Euryalus, sort of the Patroclus to his Achilleus, wins. We then see a jumping competition. I can't recall whether it's a long jump or a high jump. I do think it's a long jump, though. I seem to recall. And Amphialos wins. And then there's a discus throw. And the discus throw is pretty cool. It's part of the field events if you're in track and field. You spin around in a 360 and you hurl a huge disc-shaped stone at some like 70, 80 feet, maybe even farther. And so it's pretty impressive. And so Odysseus is sitting here. He's watching all these games. How does he feel? Well, this is how he feels. He sees all this. He's itching to go home. This is all cool and all nice, but what does he want to go home? And where was he just at? Somewhere he was free or a prisoner? And so while he's waiting and watching all this stuff, it's perhaps objectively cool, but he does not want to see what might he be starting to feel like. Sort of like what you might feel like when you are in your classrooms during the day. <laughs> a prisoner. That's right. A prisoner. Because... If someone offers you hospitality that you don't want, is it still hospitality? And that's a major question because if they are keeping him longer than he wishes to stay, then he starts to sound a bit like a what? A prisoner, right, right. And you all know this from boring conversations with people who will not listen to you and tell you stories. I can tell you I saw somebody at lunch yesterday who did that to me. And it's always odd to me because I have information that almost nobody has. So when they just want to talk over me and tell me a boring story, I'm like, yeah, okay, this is, I'm going to get out of this conversation as soon as possible, like Odysseus leaving Scoria. All right. But that's not all that happens. All does not go quite right in this situation. Now, we have many young people in this room. We have many young men as well. And so two of the young men, the nobles from this house, Sort of like the suitors misstepping in Ithaca. Laodamus, the heir and son of Alcanoas, and Euryalus, his friend. They decide that it'd be a good idea to sort of start ribbing Odysseus. They start, they start making fun of him a little bit. And they're like, let's see what you can do, stranger. Let's see what you can do. And Odysseus is not having it. He's not in the mood. He doesn't want to show off his skills. And in fact, one of the reasons he actually elucidates is this. He's like, listen. If you invite me to play with you, and I crush you at your games, am I acting like your friend who is receiving hospitality? 
Or am I acting like a conqueror of your people? Which is very interesting if you do play a sport and you ever play away games. There is a special feeling to winning in somebody else's space. It is as if you've rolled through and beaten them. In fact, the most famous tennis player, I would say at this point of all time, and one of the best, Roger Federer, explicitly said that one of his favorite things to do is to go find the local hero in a place and defeat him in tennis. And I recall thinking, that's why I like you, Roger Federer. And so, Euryalus, okay, so Laodamus and Euryalus then demand to see Odysseus's skill. Odysseus replies that he's got bigger concerns. He's more adult. He's more mature. He doesn't have time for these games. Euryalus then steps in and mocks Odysseus. This is where things start to go a little off the wheels, a little off the rails, as it were. You are not one well-versed in contests, Euryalus says. He says, you don't even look like someone who's an athlete. Perhaps... Perhaps you can't even throw, because if someone says they don't want to play, probably they're just not very what at the game you're playing. Good. Not the case with Odysseus. If there's one thing we know about him, what is he good at? Games, contests, and pretty much everything. He's a very talented individual. And so Odysseus then takes this moment to say, there are two sorts of people you rile us. There are those whose faces are beautiful and godlike. But within those faces, they have empty heads. And then there are those who don't look so great, like Odysseus. But when they speak, you can tell that there are gardens of beautiful thoughts within their minds. He says, you, Euryalus, are one of the dumb, pretty ones. I can tell that from the things you say. But yes. Odysseus was supposed to be attractive. He's, the way you think of Odysseus is he's not the biggest. He's not the strongest. He's not the most handsome. He's handsome enough, he's tall enough, but he's not the most of any of these things. We'll call that it's Achilleus that's the tallest, the most beautiful, the most divine, has the best, you know, has the highest ranking mother. He's the one who has it all. And yet Odysseus is the one that has the thing that matters most. So that's the way I would think about it. So Odysseus then is no punk. He's not going to let this kid talk to him like this. So he's like, okay. And I always think this is so cool because when I was growing up, perhaps it's not a thing anymore. Like movies, kung fu movies and movies like Mortal Kombat were really big. Like the coolest thing in the world to me was watching somebody do like a back swing kick or like a flip and then kick somebody in the head. And so the coolest thing you could do was, it was like when one guy was about to fight another and the one would just leave his coat on. What does that indicate? Insecurity or confidence? Confidence, because he doesn't even have to take off his coat to beat you. Well, that's what happens with Odysseus here. He leaves his cloak on. He doesn't even take it off. It's heavy. He's like, whatever. Picks up Odysseus, heavier than the ones the other people picked up, which means it's harder or easier to throw. Harder. Picks it up, throws it farther than the other throws, which means he's definitely water than his hosts. And so the reason he wasn't competing was because he was trying to be arrogant or humble. He's trying to be humble. And so they made him beat them. And so that's, I think, a very interesting point because the point Odysseus seems to be making that is that if you go to someone's house and they're going to give you something, you probably don't want to throw in their faces what you're better than they are at. Because, well, how many people like getting beaten at any contest ever? No. And if you get beaten by someone who needs your help, what might you be just a little less likely to give. 
writes, Odysseus wants that help. And so he's like, you guys put me in a pretty difficult situation even though you were just being playful, kids. And so, Athena in disguise measures the distance. She says, <laughs> and this is very famous, even without the ability to see, I would know that this was the best throw. So great, Athena's there. Odysseus then claims, and this is great. This is great. I'm tempted to read it, but we got to move fast today. Odysseus then claims he could win almost every contest there. I love that. He says the only one that he wouldn't be able to win is running because he's been, <laughs> he's been on the sea for so long that his legs have gotten weak. He's like, the wrestling, no problem. The boxing, no problem. Throwing things, jumping, no problem. I'm Odysseus. And so, he did not come here to shame his hosts. So Alcanoas, father, steps in. And we might see here a parallel to the story we're about to hear from Demodocus, where immature individuals cause problems. What do mature individuals then come around and do? <clears throat> Solve the problems, that's right. And so keep this in mind when we go through this story. <clears throat> Apollo and Hermes... And Ares and Aphrodite, immature. Poseidon, mature. Let's see what happens. All right, so right before we get there, though, after Elkanoas apologizes for the young men, he makes a couple admissions to us, which is very interesting. So something we had learned a little bit earlier is that the Phaeacians do not mix with the normal likes of man, which means normal humans do not generally come to the Phaeacian islands. And so it makes sense when Alcanoas says that they, as boxers and wrestlers, have an incomplete art. Because boxing and wrestling, or boxing and wrestling are cultivated versions of doing what to each other? Violence. They are violent. And so... Probably a culture which knows what ultimate act of violence would have good boxers and wrestlers. A culture that knows what? Like what happened at the Iliad. War. And since they do not mix with other people or creatures, they obviously do not engage in what? Wars. And so, they do not know the art of wars, even at an individual level. Well, But what they are good at are pleasant things. They're very good dancers. They like to dance about. They're good at running. They're good at seafaring. That means riding or steering their ships throughout the sea. And they're good at feasting. So they're a good time, these five kings. They have a good time. And so now we're going to hear Demodocus sing. And that's what we're going to end with today. This is going to be a very scandalous story. Y'all ready to hear a scandalous story? All right. Demodocus sings of Ares and Aphrodite, book eight. Lines 266 to 366. Let's lay it out. Ares and Aphrodite were cheating together. Aphrodite was long ago before ever Hephaestus married the Grace Charis, the wife of Hephaestus. In fact, in the Aeneid, which we read, Venus, Aphrodite, and the Vulcan, Hephaestus, will still be married. And in fact, Venus will sort of seduce Hephaestus, Vulcan, in order to get him to make ar armor for her son that she had by cheating on him with a mortal named Anchises. And so, does Venus be cheating? Yes. And in fact, her own son, Cupid, I believe is the son of Zeus. So she cheats quite a bit. She's, well, she is the goddess of lust slash love, after all. So, Ares and Aphrodite. 
Hephaestus is not an attractive god. We know that he has a what? A limp. A limp. He has a limp. It's uh, either a birth defect or it happened when Zeus threw him off Olympus. He's not that hot. That said, Ares, though he is the most hateful of all the gods to Zeus, to his principle of order, as Ares is the principle of conflict which destroys that order, Ares is handsome and very fast. Aphrodite, knowing that she came from the sea foam, can be a bit without depth, a little superficial. And so, as good a man or god as Hephaestus happens to be, Ares is hot. And so she cheats on her disfigured husband. In fact, there will be a very, very, very similar story in Dante's Inferno, where a woman named Francesco D'Aramini cheats on her disfigured husband, Jean, with his very handsome brother, Paolo. And in fact, Hephaestus and Ares are brothers. One day, because this doesn't sit right with all the gods, Apollo, Helios, the sun, who sees all things, sees Ares sneaking into Hephaestus' house. Doesn't much care for this. Goes down to tell Hephaestus. Terrible news. Hephaestus, you're being cheated on. Well, he wants to make sure that this is true. And as he is the god of crafts, he can make the best things. He's the ultimate engineer or carpenter. So what does he make? He makes something ingenious. He makes an invisible web, like a spider web, of unbreakable bonds. I want you to listen closely to this. That when Ares and Aphrodite find themselves in his bed, in flagrante delicto, in the act, they will get stuck in the act, so that when he comes down to see what is happening, there will be no mystery at all. And so, Hephaestus sets the trap. Leaves one day, who shows up on cue? Ares goes into the house. He and Aphrodite do what it is that they do, and then click, what happens? They get stuck. Hephaestus comes back into the house, sees this. The expression is in flagrante delicto. It means being caught red-handed. Red-handed meaning the blood from the murder is on your hands, if you didn't understand what that meant. He's furious. And so what does he do? This is so embarrassing. This, this is a great punishment. He summons all the gods and goddesses to come see what Ares and Aphrodite have done, caught in the act, unable to move as they are with these invisible bonds. And now, all the gods and goddesses hear this, the goddesses, they have too much grace. They say, we will not go down to see this shameful act. But that's not true of the gods. Poseidon, Apollo, and Hermes are all like, we gotta see this. Now, Poseidon goes down to take care of business. He, need, he knows that Ares is part of the structure of the cosmos. Conflict. Conflict produces death. Death is necessary for the life cycle. Ares cannot be dead. Love, lust, well, that produces new creatures in any species. And so, well, Aphrodite's got to get back to her job as well. So somebody's got to solve this situation. And so... The gods come down. 
And this is the famous bit that I wanted to tell you about. Hephaestus demands his bride price back from Aphrodite. This means a divorce. What he paid for her to Zeus, he demands back. And Poseidon says, you'll get it back. And then Hephaestus says, I don't trust Ares to give it back to me, just like I don't trust, just like I should not have trusted him to honor my marriage. Poseidon says, calm down, calm down, it's okay. I will pay the pride price back if he does not. In fact, this will be paralleled in book one of the Aeneid when Neptune comes to calm the passions of the winds. Calm the passions of the winds, because when he comes to this situation, what is he doing? Firing people up, or like water, cooling them off. He's cooling them off. He's calming them down. While he's doing that, we would call that mature or immature, by the way. Mature, saving a situation. Very, very volatile situation. Hermes is sitting over talking with his bud Apollo. They're brothers. In fact, Hermes is known to have stolen from Apollo the day he was born. The day he was born. Yes. And he supposedly made Apollo his lyre, his harp, where out of a tortoise shell after he killed that tortoise. which is one of the first things he did. And Apollo made for him his winged sandals. And I think also his caduceus. I don't know if his cap. But this is the joke that Hermes tells. Hermes goes up to Apollo and he kind of nudges him. He's like, tell me this. If you knew you were going to get caught like this, Would you still do it? If, would, let me, perhaps I'll even read it to you directly just because it is pretty good here. Let me look right here. Let's open our books very quickly, very quickly to book eight, just because I don't want to say this wrong. Might as well get it right. Might as well get this right. Oh, yes. So it's page 129. Line 321 or so. So let's start here. So he spoke, and the gods gathered to the house with the brazen floor. Poseidon came, the shaker of the earth, and the kindly Hermes came, and the Lord who works from afar, Apollo. But the female gods remained each at home for modesty. The gods, the givers of good things, stood there in the forecourt, and among the blessed immortals, uncontrollable laughter went up as they saw the handiwork of subtle Hephaestus. So they see Ares and Aphrodite stuck there, and they all start to laugh at them. They're ah, <laughs> highly embarrassing, high, uncontrollable laughter. And thus they would speak to each other, each looking at the god next to him. No virtue in bad dealings. You can imagine they're joking here. See, the slow has overtaken the swift, as now Hephaestus has overtaken Ares, swiftest of all the gods on Olympus, by artifice, though he was lame. And Ares must pay the adulterer's damage. That's the bride price. This was the way of gods as they conversed with each other. But ah, and this is why I read this, because it is Apollo who asked this question. Question. It is Hermes who gives the famous answer. And so it's always interesting when Apollo asks funny questions like these, because his sister is known to be chaste or virginal. She never takes a man, except for Orion, by some accounts, as a consort. And so Apollo sort of has the idea as a, even though if you read Ovid's Metamorphoses, this is not true. He has sort of the reputation of being sort of a goody two-shoes. Though he definitely does try to abduct a few nymphs in Ovid's Metamorphoses, like Daphne, which is where he gets his laurel from. But he says this, Hermes, son of Zeus, guide and giver of good things, tell me, would you, 
caught tight in these strong fastenings, be willing to sleep in bed by the side of Aphrodite the Golden. So he says, even if you were going to get stuck in here, would you do what Ares has done? Here's our Hermes, god of thieves and great traveling companion of Zeus's response. If you're a traveling companion, what do you probably have to be able to do because you're always so bored just traveling around? You need to be a good conversationalist. So that's how you pass the time. And so this is how he responds, showing his great wit. Then in turn, the courier Argaphontes, Hermes, answered, Lord who strikes from afar, Apollo, I wish it could only be. And there could be thrice the number of endless fastenings. And all you gods could be looking on, and all the goddesses. And still I would sleep by the side of Aphrodite the Golden. He spoke and there was laughter among the immortals. So Hermes says, not only would I, you could add three times the amount of fastenings and bring all the goddesses down, and I still would. And so they're all joking around. How are they acting, mature or immature? Immature. Are they helping the situation at all, or are they just enjoying the chaos of the situation? The chaos, right. They're like the students who make the circle around the two students who are fighting. Are they helping the situation, or are they enjoying the chaos? Enjoying the chaos. And so while that's happening, it says... But no la there was no laughter for Poseidon. Because when there's a mess, does someone have to clean it up? That's right. And so part of the idea behind this story is, who do you want to be? One of the many joking around immaturely, seeing the flaws of others? Do you want to be fixing things up so you can maintain harmony and peace? And that is, I would say, the major idea behind this. But also... Well, a very funny story, all the same.